Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living Sofa. Busy Living Sofa, episode 179 with Erin Carr. Hi, Erin. Hi. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's been a weird question to answer the last few months, but you know, all things considered, I'm doing really well. (laughs) Isn't it crazy? I call it time out land. It's like, you know, When you put yeah. your kids in timeout and it doesn't even, they don't, they don't even know what time is really at that point when you're doing right. timeouts. But I feel like that's where we are in yeah. society. It's like everybody's taking a deep breath and just hanging out, waiting for the next thing to happen. Yes. Yes. Oh gosh. I, this is, I mean, like everyone else, this is not at all how I envisioned this year. <laughs> we had all these plans for all this great stuff and now it's not yeah. happening at all. Right. Yes. Oh my gosh. So I, you know, I read, I've read excerpts of your book, mm-hmm. Strung Out, right? Yes. And, um, and I have to say, I was, it, it's so interesting. You actually first picked up the first drug was at eight years old. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that was consciously or do you think it's just, what do you, I mean, if you were to think back. I mean, I think it was, I mean, it was conscious in that, you know, I took a pill out of that bottle because it had a warning label that said may cause drowsiness. And that is what I wanted. I was having panic attacks, which I obviously at eight years old, I didn't understand that that's what was happening. I just felt so much anxiety and shame, shame about, you know, childhood trauma, shame about feeling that way about myself and and feeling like I wanted to harm myself. So it sort of like snowballed. I wasn't consciously thinking, oh, I want to take a drug to get high. I was thinking, I want to, this says it's going to make me drowsy. I need to be drowsy. Wow. You were pretty in tune at eight. I was. I mean, I was a smart kid. I started reading at three and by seven years old, six, seven years old, I was already stealing books from my parents. So I I was very, um, you know, sometimes I joke, I think I was smarter then than I am now, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I was, I was a bright kid. I was aware of things going on around me, but I was, and I was also very good at hiding what was going on with me. So it was, you know, that sort of combination that really lended itself to this. And so then at eight, and then did you pretty much not do anything till you were 13 and got that boyfriend or... I know. I mean, I had, I got into the habit of sort of, you know, not all the time, but I would, when I was at relatives' homes or at my friends' homes, I'd go into their parents' medicine cabinets and I would take one or two pills out of any bottle that said may cause drowsiness, (laughs) which, you know, so stupid because I, I didn't know what any of them were at that time. By the time I was 13, I knew what Vicodin was. I knew what Valium was, but I didn't know at eight, it was a Darvacet and it was, I didn't know what it was. It had, it was expired. It had been sitting in our medicine cabinet a long time. It was, it belonged to my grandmother probably after she was in the hospital or something. I don't really know. And my mom, I was talking to my mom about it recently and she, she was trying to remember why she would have had it. And she said, maybe my mom gave it to me for, because my mom always had migraines, but it really just sat there untouched for so long. And your mom must have been in shock now talking about it in hindsight. She's probably like, oh my gosh, what was my eight-year-old daughter doing taking oh, yeah. anxiety, right? Yeah. yeah. And- I mean, you know, my parents didn't know anything about 
my addiction until I was caught by my fiance at the time when I was 23. So I had 10 years of hiding my addiction, which, you know, there were times that I wasn't using, but it was pretty much on those whole 10 years. They were completely shocked when they found out that I had been using heroin when I was 23. And, you know, I didn't tell them the whole truth then. It took time. You know, I had another five years of constantly relapsing, another stint in rehab. And when I was 28 and it finally, you know, my life finally turned around. Now it's been 17 years. It took time for all of the truth to come out with my parents and with the people in my, I'm close to in my life. And then obviously, you know, they've read the book. Both of my parents have read the book, which wasn't an easy read for them. And, and also because they knew all of these things in sort of broad strokes, but to mm-hmm. read about them in detail is a different experience. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it was, it was, I know now for myself as a parent, I can only imagine having to kind of con- confront that. You know, the only thing we have going for us on that, that end now is that there's been enough time and space from the events that it doesn't feel so traumatic, you know? Um, It was much harder for my parents, like in the moment when they found out that I was using versus now, 17 years later, you know, it's not as, it's not as hard to process. And when you think back to those 10 years that you Mm -hmm. just talked about that nobody knew and Mm -hmm. that you were hiding, I mean, there's so many people out there that are in that same place, right? That just, that no one knows, it's their little secret. Mm-hmm. And when you think back to that, like what a prison it was kind of probably like, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was absolutely, you know, there's so much loneliness in trying to hide something, mm-hmm. right? Whatever it is. And I think that, you know, we usually hide things because we carry shame about them. Mm-hmm. And then the hiding itself breeds more shame, you know? And I just, I didn't, I didn't have an understanding that as a child. I didn't have an understanding of that as a young adult and well into my 20s. And even after I stopped using drugs in those early years of recovery, I was still so afraid of people knowing certain things, knowing about certain things that I had done, knowing how bad it was, you know? There was so much shame around that. And I didn't get at that time, which I understand now, that once I started just telling the truth and and owning it, I had so much relief from that shame. It was like it just started to dissipate. And now, you know, there are people that have met me in recent years and they have no idea, obviously, when they meet me and when they find out the reactions are interesting. Usually they're just so shocked. And I'm like, well, you know, that's because you have a certain image in your head of what a drug addict looks like. And it really looks like anybody. It looks like the person sitting next to you. It's not, you know, I think that there, there's so much of, you know, sort of the era that I grew up in and like the 80s, this sort of like just say no, like the D.A.R.E. program, war on drugs. There was such a sort of caricature made out of people who were selling drugs and using drugs that it dehumanizes them us a little bit and then they forget that there's a human being underneath all of that addiction you know and that's something that i when i speak about this a lot um you know on panels and with public health officials law enforcement everything i really try to always bring that point home that you have to look past all of the destructive behavior around it to remember that there is a human being there struggling with a human condition I love that. I love how you described that. 
I'd never heard it like that. Yeah. Cause you know, busy living sober is all about getting busy living sober in the day, mm-hmm. whatever drug that you're on. Right. And because for me, I was so, my drug of choice was alcohol. So mm-hmm. for me, I was so ashamed to say, oh my gosh, I'm an alcoholic because right. how society portrays the alcoholic is still right. underneath the bridge. Right. 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 Or uh, sitting on a park bench with the bottle in a bag. Right. And I think it's in some ways for alcohol, you have this stigma because it's such a socially acceptable thing to do is to drink socially. Right. Right. So there is some sort of judgment that a lot of people give towards people who are struggling with alcoholism because they they look at it like, well, why couldn't you why couldn't you just drink less? Why couldn't you, you know, whatever the parameters are, how could you do X? You know, how could you do that? I don't understand that. And I think that it's so interesting just sort of observing it now, you know, with, (laughs) I was so much more sensitive to it when I was younger. And now, you know, it really has to do with people unable to confront things in their own lives that may have nothing to do with addiction, but it's really difficult for people to, people who have trouble um, being compassionate or empathetic towards other people who are struggling. It's really about an issue in their own lives. And I recognize that, but it doesn't, it's not going to stop me from speaking out about it because it's so important. You know, it's so, so important to remember, you know, I, people who are, you see people, especially in the last several years with the opioid epidemic, sort of like reporting on it. You know, we all know those like famous images of like these parents, you know, completely passed out in their car with a baby in the back or, you know, nodding out homeless folks, nodding out on the sidewalk or whatever it is. And, you know, the the all of those people all of their lives matter all of them deserve compassion and kindness and shelter and food and health care they are not undeserving of those things just because they're struggling with alcoholism or addiction i agree with you 110 percent so tell me this when you were so at 13 this boyfriend mm-hmm. introduces heroin to you yes and did you so, and again it sounds like you are brilliant and not not only bright but you're brilliant so when he introduces you to heroin did you have any idea what the path was going to look like were you scared what i mean do you remember that first time that you you did yeah it? i mean i did you know <laughs> i remember having this conversation years ago with my parents it's the decision to use heroin was such, it felt so inconsequential at the time, which is hard for people to wrap their head around. I was like, he offered it to me and I said, okay. He really could have offered me anything. I was at that point, you know, at 13, I had had all already these years of sort of struggling with the feelings I had about myself. I'd been sexually abused as a kid, never told my parents, you know, until much later. I had so much self-loathing that I just wanted out of my skin so desperately that it wouldn't have mattered what he offered me. I had read about heroin, you know, in books here and there was mentioned TV. I had some references for it, but I just didn't care what the consequences were. It wasn't like, I wasn't seeing down the line and thinking, oh, I might like this and then become addicted to it and then have all these sorts of problems. I just needed out of my skin. And I thought this could do it. And it did, you know, it did do that. It did give me some distance from myself. It allowed sort of a separation between my body and my overactive mind. 
And so that time you did it, and then were you off to the races for the next 10 years, 13? No, I mean, it, you know, I think in the beginning, probably, you know, it, I wasn't like strung out right away. Oh. I was using on weekends, mm -hmm. you know, when I saw my boyfriend, my parents didn't know I have a boy, had a boyfriend, they were divorced. I was, had perfect grades. I had a lot of friends. I horseback rode six days a week. I was a cheerleader, volleyball player. I didn't on the outside appear to have any sort of the warning signs of a problem. Yeah. When I was 15, you know, at times my use would escalate and then I'd kind of get it back under control. I wasn't really strung out because I was sort of just doing it, you know, I'd do it for a couple days and then stop for a week and then do it for a couple days and stop. And with opiates for most people, the first time that they become physically addicted to it, it takes a little bit of time unless you're just full force doing it every day. So when I was 15, I decided I had made the decision that I was going to stop. I broke up with the boyfriend. There were like a series of events around it. I had a friend die, just different things had happened. And when the drugs were gone, my emotions <laughs> became very sort of, you know, big. And I had so much trouble self-regulating that's when my parents noticed that there was a problem not when i was on drugs and that was the first time that i really started going to therapy because they they could tell you know i was unable to sort of control emotional outbursts i was all over the place and and so i always you know i used to joke that like whenever i was on drugs everyone thought i was fine <laughs> when i was you know trying to stay off of drugs that's when the problem came in so then you know from 15 until um, like 20, 21, I was taking pills a lot. Like, you know, I would just steal pills all over the place. Um, I, you know, for a few years was doing crystal meth off and on. Um, pills were like the constant, you know, I certainly tried other things, but, but op opiates, pills were always the constant, but I had told myself I wasn't going to do heroin again. And then in my early 20s, it came back. And when it came back, it came back with a vengeance. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And then at that point, I was really off to the races with it because I, um, I you know, I started, first started smoking it and thought, oh, I'm not going to use a needle again. And then I started shooting up and then it very quickly escalated, needed more and more and more, um, went to rehab the first time and then just struggled for the next five years to maintain any sort of sobriety. I think the longest amount of time I had was about 10 and a half months okay. that right after rehab. And then it was just constantly relapsing. And I just wouldn't tell anyone. I kept going to 12-step meetings and, and then I'd relapse again and I'd quit cold turkey detox and just keep going to meetings. And I just was doing that over and over and over again. And then it was the birth of your son? Mm -hmm. Well, when I got pregnant with my first son, Atticus, I, um, you know, I made the decision against all better judgment that I wanted to have this baby. And I, but I was using, and I found a doctor that was, who was willing to detox me. You know, the protocol then, this is the end of 2002, uh, the protocol then was to put expecting mothers on methadone and I had never been on methadone and I really didn't I didn't want to do that um I had seen a lot of friends really struggle with getting off of methadone and I just I didn't want to go down that road so I found a doctor 
who would um, detox me over seven days using buprenorphine, which is the main ingredient in Suboxone, which is widely used now. It sort of tricks the opiate receptors into thinking that they're getting opiates. So you, the, the withdrawal symptoms aren't quite as bad. You still go through withdrawal, but they're not quite, it's not quite as bad. So over seven days under his supervision, I detoxed and I made the commitment to myself that I was gonna stay off of heroin for the pregnancy. I didn't know if I would be able to stay off for good. I really doubted it. I had never had any <laughs> long-term sobriety. Um, when Atticus was born, I had one of those lightning bolt moments. You know, my entire pregnancy, I'd been very ambivalent. I didn't even know, I didn't know why I was having this baby. It made no sense. I ended up marrying his father, who was not a drug addict, um, who it was not a good marriage and we should never have gotten married. But, you know, the moment that I saw Atticus and the nurse put him in my arms, I had that lightning bolt moment where I looked at him and this very clear thought ran through my head, which was, I love you more than I hate myself. Wow. And I knew that I couldn't do that to him. I didn't want to take all that self-loathing and everything I had and put it on him. And I never used again. Now, my caveat with that is that I then was willing, willing and had the means to do the work that I needed to do. I had the support of family. I had financial support for my family so that I could go to back to a psychiatrist, go through talk therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy to address the trauma and to address some of my personality issues and the depression. All of that was possible because I had access to that long-term aftercare and most people don't, yeah. you know, and that's really a key. And, you know, and I also like to say that, you know, I don't know why something clicked for me. I have a lot of friends who continued using after they had children or didn't get sober for the first time, you know, until after they had children. And that, that doesn't mean that they, like, they didn't love their kids. It, it just, for whatever reason, flipped something for me that, that gave me the push to, to dig into all of that mental health stuff that I really needed to, that was at the core for yeah. me of where my addiction came from. Well, they say like you peel back the onion, right? You were yeah. willing to go to that place that I always felt like if I went there, I'd become Humpty Dumpty, right? Yeah. And become a million pieces and never be able to be put right. back together again. And so did you use 12, was the 12 steps and therapy what you used from day Yeah, on? I mean, 12, 12 steps was the basis of my recovery. Okay. I, I didn't stay in 12 step programs. I found that I needed something a little bit different. And, and I think actually initially it sort of hindered me in the sense that I really thought that the only way that I was going to stay sober is if I did it, you know, through the 12 steps with a sponsor and I, and it, but it wasn't working. I just, I needed, when I started to address the mental health stuff and, and develop some spiritual practices for myself. And, you know, I learned how to be in my body again by getting into Kundalini yoga and learning how to breathe and sit in my body, which I just couldn't do before. I couldn't stand being here, I wanted to exit all the time. Oh Going through all that and learning how to do it ended up being the key for me. And, you know, I had very sort of narrow vision before that of how people, how you could get sober. And now my viewpoint's totally different. It's like, whatever works, works. You know, I, if, if you're going to get 
get sobriety through medicated assisted treatment, whether that be methadone or Suboxone, great. That works for you. That's awesome. The bottom line is we want people to be alive, number one, <laughs> in order to help them. And number two, I think that there isn't a one-size-fits-all cure or treatment. And if we were treating somebody with cancer and the protocol that was being used wasn't working, that team of doctors would come up with a new treatment protocol. And I think that we need to look at addiction in the same way, that um, certainly the 12 steps have helped a lot of people, but they don't necessarily work for everyone. And I think that, you know, I had, I wasn't as open-minded to that early on in the years that I was trying to get sober. And now my attitude's totally different. If it, if that works for you, I think it's great. If it doesn't work for you, there are a lot of other ways to, to get sobriety. That said, there are, there are some fundamental things in 12-step programs that I think are present in other treatment programs. Mm -hmm. And that, that number one thing is the honesty. It's honesty with yourself and other people. Like that, that's sort of at the core. If you can't do that, you know, that's sort of like the thing that's gonna block people from being able to sustain, not just sobriety, but I think that's sort of like a, a block to happiness or satisfaction or whatever fulfillment in life is, is that inability to be honest, which is something that a lot of people struggling with addiction share. And it's so true. And we just talked about it, right? It's mm -hmm. like peeling back that onion. It's getting yeah. to that place that you feel safe enough that, all right, I'm going to tell you all this stuff. And I pray I'm not in a million pieces after this. Right. But I agree with you hundred percent. It can't just be one size fits all. I think no. that's, yeah. I, I think that's why we haven't been so successful. I think mm -hmm. in recovering a lot of people is because we just think that it's one band aid. <laughs> Like, exactly. we're like we're robots like we yeah. only, it just it doesn't right work. because i and you know i also think that like i think that like for a lot of folks the disease model of, of alcoholism and addiction applies to them and then there are folks where the core of their addiction is something else it's trauma right you know and i think that you know when i for me the trauma component and the mental health stuff was really the the core for me yeah. I wasn't going to get well until I addressed that trauma. There was no amount of, you know, fourth steps <laughs> that I was going to do that were going to undo the, that were really going to work on the trauma and sort of that cognitive behavioral therapy that I had to do to learn how to regulate my emotions. So, um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, so much of it comes with like age. And I think that the thinking has shifted in the recovery world. You know, I think that there is more of an openness to people finding pathways that aren't just 12-step programs, but I, it is still definitely widely pushed within, you know, institutions, rehab, rehabs and, and sober livings and whatnot. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that it's amazing because I know that on your website, mm -hmm. you have Ask Aaron. Which yes. for those of us that are old enough, remember Dear Abby. Yeah. I love that. I uh, saw that and I saw your follower. It's amazing. I love that. So people you. can reach out to you when they're feeling, you know, for clemp, for lack of a better word, yeah. of like what's going on in their life with either mm -hmm. alcohol, drugs, and then even just anything. Being, being a <laughs> yeah. mom, right? Existing yeah. in COVID when you have to cut right. your own hair. I mean, right. Like, <laughs> Or trying to work with from home with children <laughs> or whatever. I mean, you know, people write into me about so many different things. You know, I, I get 50 to 75 emails a week from people and, you know, 
a lot of times it's relationships. There's a lot of addiction issues, um, whether they're the loved one of someone who's struggling or they're the person struggling. Um, and, you know, in the last few years, ever since the whole Me Too movement, I get so many emails about consent and about from, from young women who are wondering if what happened to them was rape or assault. And from surprisingly, or it was surprising to me at first, from a lot of men who were questioning some of their own behavior. Wow. Um, that, and that's been very interesting. Well, you're an amazing, I mean, I think it's awesome that you've started all this. It's totally amazing. And that you're making yourself vulnerable and letting everybody know this. It's huge. It is a huge thing. And it's like, you have set aside the shame finally, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. You don't I mean, I, you know, so many people are like, aren't you worried about people, what people will think when they read the book? And it's like, one, I had to give up worrying about likability when I wrote this book because I couldn't honestly portray myself if I was worried about whether or not the reader would like me. Right. And that was the first thing. And then the second thing is that, you know, if somebody has a problem with me for something that I did 17, 20, 30 years ago, that says a lot more about their character than it does mine. I'm not there. Of course there are things that I, if I could go back in time, I would do differently because of the effects they had on other people. But I can't sit here and hold shame. It's not my shame to carry. If somebody else wants to be ashamed for me, they can, but I'm not. <laughs> and you know what? I just have to say, and I'm not stalking your Instagram. I just looked at it. But you mentioned that when you were younger, horses were a very big part of your life. Mm -hmm. And I just saw that you went out and you were on a horse this, this yeah. past week. And yes. how awesome was that? It's like you're Ugh. doing all the stuff you love. Yes, I just started horseback riding again. It had been over 10 years since I'd been on a horse and over 25 since I was riding competitively. And, you know, I, I feel very fortunate that I'm able to do it right now. And uh, I, I, it's made me so happy. <laughs> it's really like the, the uh, TV just came on in the background. I don't know why that just went on. Uh, it, it's really one of those things that for me, it's like meditation. It's like one of those sort of soul exercises for me. Everything about it from the riding to being around the horse, grooming the horse, you know, all of it is very um, soul fulfilling for me. Well, you know what? It has been such a pleasure to get to know you today. Really? <laughs> oh my gosh, I feel like my new best friend. It's so awesome. I love that you talk about all the tools you're, that you have in your life today. And it's like that you talked about Kundalini Yoga. That's one of your mm -hmm. things. Breathing, getting mm -hmm. back on a horse. Like mm -hmm. now you can go and do these things where in those 10 years you talked about, it was right. so small, right? It was like, you. Oh, could, yeah. I mean, there was nothing. Right. And now you have this world that's filled. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, there's no, you know, I, I often say to people that if I had told, if, if someone had told me, or if I could go back in time and tell myself younger me at, you know, 13, 18, 25, even 28, that I would ever be happy and, and be able to stay off of drugs. I never would have believed it. And, and that's, you know, am I happy all the time? No, but in general, I'm happy. And I think even more importantly, I feel very satisfied by my life. You know, I feel like I have created a life for myself that I didn't think was possible for someone like me. And that's huge.
and you're helping people. And that's what like, I yeah. feel like we're put on this planet to do, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And to make everybody be like, oh my gosh, she did this. She got through this. She mm -hmm. went through this too at eight years old. She picked that up too. And oh my gosh, yeah. for 10 years, nobody knew. And now look at me and your mom. Yeah. Yeah. And you have your own business and mm -hmm. you have this life that's beyond anything you could ever imagine. Absolutely. And I feel like when we're in our addiction, we, it's like so, it's like, we can only think like A, B, C, maybe D, right? Right. right. When it's like so many different opportunities are out there. We don't even know. So many. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I, I really, if I could go back, if I could go back and tell myself something, I think I would, I would let myself know that those things were pop or a possibility for myself. I, I really didn't think they were. And that I could let people see who I really am and they would still love me, oh. you know? And that self-love is something we don't teach our kids in school, right? No, we don't, no. It's, and it stinks, I think. And you know, I have older kids, my kids are 20, almost 24, 23 and 21. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they don't have, you know what I mean? I, I try right. to do that myself, right? But it's like, I have to keep reiterating going, it doesn't matter, just keep trying. What's right. the worst thing that some something's gonna happen? Somebody says right. no. Right, and you know, some of it's like, nor I mean, some of that's like a function of adolescence, which as we know, lasts well into your 20s. <laughs> it does, you know, yeah. your brain, it's part of that is adolescence, this feeling like, nobody has ever felt the way I feel, you know? And there's, that's, you know, I've said that the, I wrote the book that I needed when I was younger. So I've just hoped that, you know, somebody picks it up and, and sees themselves or sees somebody they know, or when they see people struggling with addiction, have more empathy and compassion, all of those, all of those reasons. Well, Erin, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for this resource for our society, you know, for our young people and for people that feel like, oh my gosh, how can I get out of this? How right. am I ever going to have a life that's successful? And being so there for people, like you're available all the time by right, and people can write to you. So they I'll have a link. Whenever, yeah. <laughs> and so I'll have a link for your book and I'll have a right. link for your website on here. Right. And uh, I really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And until next time, everybody, keep getting busy living sober. Bye-bye.